Well, good morning, church. My name is David, and I serve as the director of youth ministries in New York for the Assemblies of God, and uh, have done so for just about six years. It'll be six years, February 1st, and prior to that, I served here at Trinity uh, for almost 12 years as a pastor, and it's good to bring the word for you this morning. I'm excited to be in our series, What is the Gospel? We're in week three. Week one, we should do a little trivia, but I'll just let you off the hook. Week one was the gospel is unique and central to Christianity. Last week, Jason, Jason shared with you that the gospel is good news, not good advice. Jason, maybe you should preach again this week. Where are you? <laughs> and this morning, we're going to talk about the truth that the gospel is receive, not achieve. One of the things that I get to do in my uh, work, one of, the, one of the things I'm responsible for in my job is to run a summer camp for teenagers. And so we have a summer camp we run in July for about 300 campers. And uh, of course, part of camp, how many of you grew up and you ever went to a summer camp, summer camp somewhere in your history? Okay. And you survived. That's good. Um, Part of summer camp is the games, right? The recreation and crazy games. And I I guarantee you some of the games you played at summer camp growing up, we cannot play anymore. We live in a different time and age, and we can't play the games you played. But we still try to play fun, safe games that our insurance company allows us to play. And uh, a couple of the games we played this past summer, one of them was called Slip and Slide Kickball. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's kickball, but instead of bases, there are little... um, infant child pools full of water, and there are slip and slides leading into each base. So the kids kick the ball and they run and they have to slide into each base to be safe. Another game that we played uh, involved teams working together to move a very large item across a big field. And it was a bunch of black inner tubes that had been uh, duct taped together and other things. It was very hard to lift and carry, and they had to carry it across. And while they were carrying it across, all the other teams got to throw things at them as they try to get across. And if you got hit by one of the things, you were out. And so by the end, sometimes it was one little kid trying to pull that whole thing across the finish line. And one of the things that they had them throw in was they, they took diapers, unused diapers, and uh, wrapped them up uh, and then dipped them in Hershey chocolate sauce. <laughs> and so people are firing these diapers at people. And who wants to go to camp? Doesn't that sound fun? And another, one other game we did last year, which I thought was one of the more creative, unusual games, was uh, the rec team took helmets, um, they were uh, hard hats, and they drilled screws through them in the opposite direction, so they were sticking out the top and the sides of the helmets, and then their team, one of them had to stand there, and their team threw raw hot dogs at their head <laughs> and tried to see how many hot dogs they could get stuck to the helmet. It was something else to watch. When we are explaining the games, of course, everybody wants to know what are the rules, right? Anybody ever open up a new board game? What's the first thing you do? You get out the rules. What are the rules? But as we're explaining the rules, it doesn't matter how good of a job you do explaining all the rules. If there's one question you don't answer, you have failed terribly. And it's the question, how do I win, right? That's all I really want to know. How do I win? Rules, schmules. How do I win this game? That's all that matters. Because everyone out there at camp is killing themselves in the sun trying to win, trying to achieve victory. You know, when it comes to achieving things and winning, it's not just games and sports, is it? It can be all of life. We try to win in our careers. 
We try to win at work. We try to win in our homes. We try to win in the area of finances. We try to win in our relationships. We try to, anyone never try to win in traffic? Uh, we, try to, we try to win in politics. We try to, some of us try to win every single conversation we ever have. We're trying to win. It's all of life. And all of our lives, we feel like we're trying to achieve something, trying to measure up, trying to matter, trying to prove ourselves. Arthur Miller, who is an American playwright, who's probably most famous for his play, Death of a Salesman and Crucible, also had a play called After the Fall. And in his play, After the Fall, the, the entire play takes place in the mind of a Jewish man named Quentin. And Quentin is reflecting on his entire life to make a big decision. Should he marry his sweetheart, Holga? And as he's reflecting, this is one thing that he says as he looks at life. He says, for many years I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then, what a good lover. Then, a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful or whatever. But underneath it all, I see now there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows that I would be either justified or condemned. He has this overwhelming sense that all of life is really a series of tests. How do I prove myself to be a, a good father? How do I prove myself to be a good worker? How do I prove myself? And he had this sense that at the end of life, he would either pass or he would fail. There would be a verdict announced. And at the end of life, the question that would really affect him the most is this, did I achieve enough? Did I achieve enough? You know, life can feel like one opportunity after another to achieve something. When you're a kid, you go off to school, and you have all sorts of ways to achieve something. My, my girls have this, my, the school I send my girls to use this app called Class Dojo. In class dojo, all day long, the teacher can give points or take points away from your child based on different things. And as a parent, you can actually track your child's day all day long and see how they're doing. So literally, there's opportunity, and if they get enough points, they get something, they get some sort of a prize. Uh, we give kids report cards, physical fitness tests, all sorts of ways to achieve things. And then as you become a teenager, now it's more about achieving uh, things in the areas of um, still grades, of course, because you're trying to get into college, or, or you're trying to achieve success in the area of relationships, trying to navigate the jungle of relationships, trying to uh, prove yourself in sports or music or whatever everybody tells you you're good at, then you head off to college and now you have to put together a proper transcript so that when you graduate from college you can get into graduate school or take the next step or, or you go to the military and there's a whole other way of achieving and proving things and then you need a resume to get a job and then as you become an adult it doesn't really go away. No, everything you do is a chance to prove yourself, to achieve something, whether it's your career, your marriage, your family. And so all of life and we're really wired to achieve. And the gospel is so radically counterintuitive to both human nature and the human experience because the gospel says it's not achieve, 
It's received. The gospel is received, not achieved. We're going to look at a passage that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll, I'll read it to you, but if you want to turn there quickly in your Bibles or flip there on your phones, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and this is one of his most personal, heartfelt letters that is, really exists in the New Testament. He's really laying it, putting his heart on his sleeve for these people because they're, they're, he loves them, but they are hurting him with their words and they're doubting him, and so he's really just being very uh, transparent with them. And we're going to begin in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And here's what Paul says. He says, So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. Isn't that some of your stories? Verse 17, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. Verse 18, all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Summarized in these two verses. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. The gospel is receive, not achieve. Verse 18 says that all this is a gift from God. Now, we just not so long ago finished Christmas, right? And most of you probably received some sort of a gift. When, you're, when someone gives you a gift, do you say, well, hold on, before I open this gift, let me perform for you. Let me perform some, some feat of great strength, or let me quote some great poem to you, or let me ask me a difficult question, and let me prove that I'm smart enough to open and to receive this gift. Of course we don't. We simply what? We just receive it. We open it. We take it. We make it our own. We thank the giver for the gift. It seems simple, right? Just receive. It seems very simple. But you know, in life, it isn't. It's one of the hardest things for humans to do is to simply receive. And this morning, two things we're going to see. Number one, what we receive in the gospel. What exactly do we receive in the gospel? And then secondly, we're going to ask the question, well, why do we prefer to achieve? Why are we so wired to achieve? So first, what do we receive? Well, the first thing that we receive is in verse 17, we receive a new identity. You become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. When you look at this verse, Paul makes a very important if then statement. You know what an if-then statement is? If you eat your vegetables, then you'll be healthy, right? If all you eat is fatty foods, then you won't be healthy. If-then statements, right? So Paul here says, if you belong to Christ, then you become a new person. So if we're going to receive a new identity, then we need to understand this. What does it mean to belong to Christ? If belonging to Christ is the way to receive a new identity, how do we belong to Christ? Well, Paul actually told us in the previous verse, it was the very first verse that we read this morning, where he said, we used to view Christ how? Merely from a human perspective, but not anymore. We see him differently. How do you know you belong to Christ? You no longer view Christ from a human perspective. You've come to know him differently. 
Now think about the way humans see other humans. Humans tend to see other humans as either you can help me achieve what I want or you can't. You can help me get where I'm going and so I'm going to draw near to you or you can't or even worse, you're actually an obstacle to what I want to achieve so I need to deal with you, get around you or get away from you. That's just the way we are. People can help us or hurt us in what we're trying to achieve. If you're in the business world and you walk into a networking meeting, it's amazing how fast you can walk into a room and scan the room and immediately know who will help your cause and who might not be the best use of your time. You walk in trying to figure out who can help me in my career, who should I be seen with, who can I have the right conversations with. This is true for teenagers and young people too as they look around the social uh, um, landscape of high school. If I'm, this, with, if I'm with this group, it does this to my social status. If I'm seen with this group, it doesn't. Uh, uh, my girls love reading the little book's Diary of a Wimpy Kid. In a Diary of a Wimpy Kid, the, the, main, the main young man, he actually has a, a numbered list of popularity in his high school. And throughout the book, he, he's at different places. And at one point, he, does a big, he makes a big social taboo, and he drops all the way to the bottom of the list. See, we, we look at people that way. We tend to see humans as people who can help us achieve what we want or as obstacles between us and what we want. And of course, looking at humans from a human perspective... It is true, right, that humans can meet certain needs in our lives, our needs for friendship, our needs for relationship, our, our needs for, you know, uh, we marry someone because we believe that, uh, you know, the value that they add to our lives and what life is like, uh, you know, people hire people because of who they are and the skill sets that they have. So humans certainly can meet our needs on some level. But here's what I'm saying, and here's what I think Paul is saying. No, other, no human can actually meet what you need the most. There is not another human that can achieve for you what you most need. Well, what did Jesus do for us? How, how does Paul see Jesus differently now? Remember, Paul, at a time, persecuted Jesus, and specifically, he persecuted the people who served and followed Jesus because he saw Jesus as maybe at best a good teacher who his followers had taken to an extreme. He just saw Jesus as another human. And another human can only do certain things for you. Another human has a limit to what they can provide for you. But now Paul sees Jesus differently. And we have to also if we belong to Jesus. And it says in verse 21 that God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Let me just summarize what this is a... Verse 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is one of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible because I think it's a beautiful snapshot of the gospel. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we could be made righteous in God through Jesus Christ. Let me just summarize for you what Paul's saying here. He's pointing out to us that Jesus Christ came to earth and lived as one of us, but different from all of us right? That's an important distinction. He lived as one of us, but his life was radically different than any of us because he lived a completely perfect, righteous life. He lived without sin. The Bible says that he was tempted in every way that you and I have been tempted, but he never sinned. So he deserves the acceptance of God because he's the one righteous human. 
He's the perfect image of the Father. That's what we were supposed to be. We're image bearers. But we lost an aspect of the image of God at the fall. And so Jesus comes to restore our images. And so as the perfect image bearer, as the exact representation of the Father who lives perfect in our place, he deserves the acceptance and the approval of his Father. But rather, the shocking plot twist, as it's explained in this verse, he becomes sin on the cross. He literally became our sin. And he bore our punishment, the punishment for all of our sins. And three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating death and the grave, and proving something very important, that his sacrifice was accepted and that it was sufficient, that what he did is enough. And so we hope in him and we hope in his record. And as we hope in him, his record, his performance record, his perfection and the rewards of his perfection become ours. Jesus achieved, here's what Jesus achieved for you that no other human could achieve for you. Jesus achieved right standing before God for you. No human can do that for you. And you couldn't do it for yourself. Your only hope was that Jesus Christ would achieve right standing for you. So what this means is, in the gospel, we receive a new identity. We're a new person. We have a new identity. We were, did you see it in the text? We were God's enemies, but now we're what? What's the key word in that text? We're reconciled. Did you hear that word several times? The ministry of reconciliation, the message of reconciliation, that God was in Jesus reconciling us to himself. He reconciled the world, a rebellious world, who shook their fists in his face and killed his son. He reconciled the world to himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The... This is called, by the way, this is a doctrinal term called justification. Justification means that God declares sinners righteous because of their faith in his son. And here's the other thing. He doesn't just declare you as righteous. He treats you as righteous. Because what did he do to the son? He declared the son and treated the son to be sin. He treated Jesus to be your sin so that he could treat you to be Jesus' righteousness. It's the great, it's the great exchange. It's the substitution. It's, it's justification. The ESV study Bible says it this way. The heart of the doctrine of justification is that Jesus counts believers as forgiven and God declares and treats them as forgiven because God the Father has imputed the believer's sin to Christ and because God the Father likewise imputes Christ's righteousness to the believer. When you see and believe in what Jesus the God-man did for you, then you belong to him. You are his, your heart and your hopes. He's your Lord. You gladly make him your Lord. And you know what you receive? A new identity. You're not the same. You're not the old man. You're not the old woman. You are made new because you belong to him. I don't know how long ago it was that the movie Toy Story came out to the theaters. It was quite a while now. And uh, I remember... if. You've seen, how many of you have seen Toy Story? Most of you have seen Toy Story. Toy Story is about a little boy named Andy who has toys who, who come to life. And his, there's a toy, Woody, who is a cowboy, and he's like the, the most widely loved toy, both by Andy and the other toys. And he's like the aw shucks, voiced by Tom Hanks, sort of good guy. And then on, on uh, Andy's birthday, he receives a new toy named Buzz. And Buzz is a space ranger. But Buzz has an identity crisis. Because Buzz actually believes he's a space ranger. And all the other toys are like, Buzz, you're a toy. And in one of the funnier scenes of the movie, Buzz 
determined to prove that he's actually a space ranger, says, well, then I should be able to fly if I'm a space ranger. And he falls off the bed, but he just bounces off of a ball and it just looks like he flies through the air and he lands on the bed and it just confirms all of his delusions that he is a space ranger. Well, Andy has a next door neighbor named Sid. He's that nightmare kid in your neighborhood. And Sid likes to do bad things to toys. Sid's going to be in trouble someday. Uh, But Sid through a series of events, gets his hands on Andy's toys, including Buzz and Woody. And Woody gets trapped inside a milk crate, and Buzz gets strapped to a uh, firework. This is what, uh, this is what Sid's going to do to them. But before that happens, Buzz is wandering through Sid's house, and the TV's on. And he comes up to the TV, and there's a commercial, and the commercial is for Buzz Space Ranger. And he sees on the commercial that there are thousands of him in boxes, in stores. And he has this awakening where he realizes, oh my goodness, I'm just a toy. And everything that they say the toy can do, he can do. And so it gets to this scene where Buzz is tied to this firework. Woody is under this milk crate and they're having this conversation. And Buzz is really down. He's really down. He's actually not bothered that he's strapped to a firework. He's bothered that he realizes he's not who he thought he was. And he says this, I'm not a space ranger. I'm just a toy, a stupid, little, insignificant toy. And then Woody begins to remind him, not just of who he is, but of who he belongs to. He says, whoa, hey, wait a minute. Being a toy is a lot better than being a space ranger. Look, Over there in that house is a kid who thinks you are the greatest. And it's not just because you're a space ranger, pal. It's because you're a toy. You are his toy. And what Woody is saying to Buzz is, your value is not determined by who you are or who you think you are. Your value is determined by who you belong to. And then what happens is, Buzz in the scene looks at the bottom of his foot and sees where Andy has written his name on his foot. And as Buzz looks down at his foot and through the grime and the dirt, wipes away and sees Andy's name, now he has this new sense of identity and a new sense of mission to get out of that house and to get back to Andy. Now listen, whose name is written on you? Whose name is written on you? Who do you belong to? And if you've placed your hope in Christ, then in a very, very real way, he's written his name on your heart. He's written his word on your heart. And he's actually inscribed you on the palm of his hand. And so you belong to Christ. And this is what it means to receive a new identity, that I am not my own. I've been bought with a price and I belong to Jesus. And here's the thing about receiving a new identity. You, you cannot become a new person without belonging to Christ, but you also can't work your way into a place of belonging. You can't make yourself belong. The only hope you have is in verse 18, that all of this is a gift from God. A gift not to achieve, but to receive. You don't become a new person by behaving like him. You become a new person by belonging to him. We don't achieve right standing before God. We receive it. And one of the ways you can explain the gospel to other people is that the gospel means that I get to receive what Jesus achieved for me. I receive what he achieved His rewards, his righteousness, his standing, and his identity. Okay, so we receive a new identity, but also we receive a new story. 
says, For God was in Christ. He was reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. We have a new message. You know what that means? We have a new story. We have a new narrative. We have a new way of looking at life. We have a new way of making sense of our lives. It's a story that makes sense of the world and connects us in our lives to the same story. One of the shows that my wife and I like to watch together sometimes is the show Undercover Boss. Anybody ever seen Undercover Boss? Where an executive in a company goes and works uh, what would be considered uh, lower level jobs in disguise so that he or she can get the real picture of what it's like to work in his or her company. And uh, it's, it's always interesting and somewhat predictable, but I'm always almost crying at the end when, like, they're giving, like, here's $4,000, and the people are just weeping. And I always, and I'll tell my girls, I say, you know what that is? That's grace. That's grace. Like, that's not deserved. That's, that's grace. But the, the most recent one was with the company Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf. I don't know if there's one in our area or not, but they, it's a coffee shop that's around the country. Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf. And the executive goes undercover as a barista at one of the coffee shops. And the other, he's in San Diego. And the other barista is a young man, I forget his name, but he begins to tell him his story. And he says, yeah, I, uh, I don't actually have my own place to live. He says, well, where are you living? He says, I pay $550 a month to sleep on someone's living room floor. But he says, it's better than where I was because I used to be homeless. I used to be on the streets. And then he says, I, I'm so busy trying to work and make a little, and I have a part-time job with the coffee bean and tea leaf. It doesn't really pay my bills. I really need another part-time job, but I don't even have a computer, so I can't search for another job, or I have a hard time searching. I don't have a vehicle, so he spends an hour on the bus every day to get from one side of San Diego to the other just to work his part-time job, but he loves his job. He's like an expert at everything he's doing. And you know that at the end, he's going to get a good blessing. And sure enough, at the end of the show, when the undercover boss reveals his identity to this young man, he goes and says, listen, I want to do some things for you. And the first thing he does for me, he says, I want to give you a full-time job at Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf. And the, guy, the kid is already crying and emotional and just can't believe this thing. And then on top of that, he says, we also want to give you your own apartment right near the shop that you were. And so now this kid is like, he's, he's weeping and he's moved and he's, and what he's saying is basically, he says, no one, he's like, I, I was homeless. I was paying $550 a month to sleep on someone's floor and I didn't expect this. And all of a sudden you've come along. Oh, and they gave him a computer. I gave him a laptop too. And here in one moment, his story changes from being homeless or paying too much money to sleep in someone else's house to having to ride a bus for two hours every day to working part-time to worrying about where his money would come from to not having a laptop so he couldn't stay in touch with people or, or search for jobs or do work. And now in one moment, his story changes. Well, how much more has our story changed? How much more has God changed our story? Because he's reconciled us. We weren't, just, we weren't just ignorant of him. We weren't just unaware. We were his enemies. Talk about picking the wrong fight. We were the enemies of God. But in Jesus Christ, he has reconciled you so that you are no longer, not only are you no longer an enemy, you're now a son or daughter with a stake in the inheritance of the glory of God 
because of what he did, not because of what you did. Did you notice that when we read that text? Who was the, prog- the, who was the main character? Who was doing all the action in there? It was God. God was recon- You didn't reconcile yourself to God. God reconciled you to him in Jesus Christ. Your story has changed. But not only has our message and our story changed, but did you notice that our, we also have a new task, that God, if it's true for you, then God has given you the task of reconciling people to God. Now, listen, of course, don't misunderstand this verse. You can't save anyone. You're not the Savior. You can't make people get saved. So what does it mean? It means that we can live our lives in such a way and we can speak our hope in such a way that people can say, if there's a God that reconciled you, maybe he will reconcile me. The gospel is receive, not achieve. Receive a new story. Receive a new identity. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about this morning is this. Why do we prefer to go through life achieving? If we're honest, most of us do. We would rather achieve things. And, and there, was an old, um, there was an old movie about the Bible. And uh, uh, there is a retelling of the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is an old man who God gives him a son at 100 years old. And Isaac is his son. He's the son of promise. He's, he's supposed to be the son through which God's going to bless the entire world. And one night, God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac. I want you to take him and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Now, Abraham, I'm sure, thought he, you know, that he heard wrong, but he obeyed. He takes Isaac up the hill to sacrifice him. At the end of the story, God provides a, a, a ram to, to be crushed in Isaac's place, which, is, of course, is a foreshadowing of Jesus, the perfect lamb who was crushed in our place. But in this retelling in this movie, right before Abraham, right as Abraham is tying Isaac to the altar. Isaac's not a little boy. Uh, he's probably a teenager or a young adult. As he's tying Isaac to the altar, Isaac looks at Abraham. Now, this is not in Scripture, but I think this is an interesting thought. Isaac looks at Abraham and, and says this to him. Is there nothing he can't ask of you? Is there nothing he, meaning God, is there nothing God can't ask of you. And Abraham says, no, nothing. Now, this actually explains why we like to achieve. Because if we have somehow achieved our salvation, if we have contributed to our salvation, if we have somehow earned it, then there's a limit to what God can ask of us. Because we were a contributor to it, right? I give this example. You've probably heard me give this example before. You got, most of you pay taxes. Hopefully all of you pay taxes. And, uh, and, uh, but taxes give us certain, they're supposed to give us certain services. That's a whole other conversation. But they're supposed to help us in certain ways. So if there's a pothole in my street, I'll call up the town of Clay and say, hey, there's a really terrible pothole in my street, and could you come and fill it? And if they have the gall to say to me, why should we care about that pothole and why should we come and fill it? I'll simply say, because I'm a taxpayer. I pay my taxes. You want to know how much I paid to you last year? Like, I paid my taxes, and so this is part of the deal. I did my part, now you do your part, or bust my kids to school, because, or come and pick up my trash because it's included in my taxes, right? If you're a taxpayer, there's certain things you expect. Well, when we think we've achieved our salvation, then we're a spiritual taxpayer. And we say to God, I did my part, now you do yours. And there's a limit to what he can ask of you. But if it's all his work, if the gospel is receive and not achieve, 
then, as the movie says, there's nothing he can ask of you. And let's be honest, it's a little scary. It's a little unwelcome. It's a little uncomfortable. I was texting my dad last week talking about this topic and the grace of God and saying, listen, if God has given us salvation in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then literally anything else he chooses to give to us is gravy on top. Which was the wrong choice of words because he immediately got hungry for mashed potatoes. <laughs> and the sad irony is that when we, when we try, hear this because many Christians are caught in this cycle, when we try to achieve righteousness, when we try to, remember life as a series of proofs? Well, you can start getting sucked into the proof of being a Christian, the proof of being religious, the proof of being spiritual. Let me prove to the people around me. Let me prove to the people who notice. Let me prove to my leaders. Let me prove to my pastor how spiritual, how religious, how moral, how good I am. It becomes a series of proof. And the irony is this. When you actually are trying to achieve salvation, you're actually moving further away from it. You're moving further away from receiving what Christ did. When you're trying to achieve salvation, here's what you're saying to Jesus. Thank you for what you did. It wasn't enough. It just wasn't. You did your part, now let me do my part. Thank you for what you did, but it wasn't enough. I have to finish your work. But when he died on the cross, one of the last things he said is, it is finished. His work is sufficient. It's complete. It's enough. We don't receive, we achieve. You know, in 2 Kings chapter 5, there's a story of a Syrian commander named Naaman. Naaman is a wealthy, well-respected, powerful man, but... He has leprosy, which is a death curse in that culture and in that time in history. And he's desperate to find help. And he hears that there's a prophet in Israel who can maybe get him healed. And so, so Naaman, who his whole life has been in a, a what? An achiever. His whole life he's been an achiever. He's climbed the ranks. He's, 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 he's gathered great wealth. He's conquered enemy. He's an achiever. So now he heads off to Israel to get his healing. And what do you think he thinks he's going to do to get it? He's not going to change his strategy now. He's going to achieve. So he goes to the top person in the nation, the king of Israel, because he thinks that's where important people like I go. I go to other important people. And the king tears his robes and says, who do you think I am? I can't heal you. Like, he thinks this is a trick to, to make them fight each other because Israel is going to not be able to provide the healing that the Syrian commander wants. And so he says, but there's a prophet named Elisha. And so he goes to the house of Elisha, and he rolls in with his whole uh, you know, collection of stuff that he's going to impress the prophet with and, and buy his healing and achieve things. And Elisha, the prophet, doesn't even come to the door, which is like another slap in the face of Naaman. And his servant comes to the door, and his servant comes to the door and says, the prophet said, go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. Now most of us will go, easy enough. Literally anyone can do that. But Naaman won't hear of it. He will not hear of it because he says, I came all the way here for that. That's not impressive. That's not something to achieve. That's not another notch on my belt. That's not something that I can do that people will talk about for years and years to come. And in the children's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones summarizes the story this way, and I love this. She says, all Naaman needed was nothing. And it was the one thing Naaman didn't have. All Naaman needed was nothing. And it was the one thing Naaman didn't have. To receive Christ, all you need is nothing. You come to him as you are. But if, it, if you don't have that, 
you'll never receive him. In the gospel, we receive a new identity and a new story. The gospel is received, not achieved. And as I close this morning, let me apply this to two areas of our lives. People who, um, I have friends who listen to me preach and they give me feedback. And one of the consistent pieces of feedback I get is, you don't give enough application. <laughs> You're not concrete thinker enough. And so here's my attempt. Uh, I, I, want, I want to give you two areas of life in which I think this changes us. Okay? Uh, having a new identity and having a new story. So let me just, the first one is the area of life when it comes to our possessions or our wealth, our money, our finances, our stuff, okay? I think being a receiver and not an achiever changes you. And let me explain. If, you, if you're an achiever, if you are an achiever, then here's your identity. Here's your identity when it comes to your possessions. I am what I have. And I earned it. You belong to your possessions. They don't belong to you. So your identity is I am what I have. And if I have stuff, I'm something. And if I don't have something, then I'm nothing. Okay? So that's your identity as an achiever. And your story is this. The story that you tell yourself is this. I earned this on my own, so this is mine to do with it what I want. Okay? That is, this, that is the identity and the story of people who are achievers when it comes to your money and your finances. My identity is I am what I have, and my story is I achieved it on my own. I can do what I want with it. But when the gospel changes you, and when you realize you belong to Christ, here's your new identity. As a receiver, here's what your identity is when it comes to your stuff. Everything is a gift from God. And I have nothing apart from him. I am a steward of his gifts. And here's your new story. Not, nothing is my own. I earned this money. I earned this success using the gifts that God gave me. You, you, you might be a hardworking person, and I hope you are. I hope you're the hardest worker at your, at your place of employment because that brings glory to God. And it's a great witness. I hope you're the best worker where you work. But you know what you're working with, with the brain God gave you. Using the breath that God gives you every single moment. Using the appendages that God has, has put together and allowed you to have. Using the mindset and the, and the personality and the gifts. And you might think, oh, I'm a self, I mean, that's the American dream. I'm a self-made person. I picked myself up on my bootstraps. That story is a lie. The truth is, is that everything you have is a gift from God, so everything belongs to him. So we are simply now stewards of what he is giving us, and now it becomes our joy to give. So here's what I'm saying. Every time someone in church talks about giving or tithing, if you tighten up inside, it's possible that it's not just that you don't like the idea of it, but you're actually living in a wrong story. You're living out the wrong story, and you have the wrong identity. Imagine that you have no vehicle, and you have no way to get to work, and no way to get to see family, no way to do nothing. And a philanthropist comes along and says, hey, I want to give you the vehicle of your choosing. Some of you already got, you know right now what vehicle you would choose. But I want to give you the vehicle of your choosing. I'm going to pay for the insurance. I'm going to cover everything. Not only that, every time you're out of gas, I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to take your car. I'm going to fill it up with gas, and I'm going to drive it back to you. Yeah, some of you are like, where do I sign up? Where do I sign up? <laughs> but then there's this slight caveat. The philanthropist says, but the gas station that I prefer is 15 miles away. So when I drive there to gas up, by the time I come back, you're going to be down a gallon, just so you know, okay? Just so you understand. Now, what right-minded, reasonable person would say, that's unacceptable? That is absolutely unacceptable. 
How could you take that gallon of gas from me as you're filling up my tank? I will not have anything to do with you or your gift. It's absurd, right? But when we look at our stuff, we say to God, it's unacceptable that your word would say that I should give 10% of what I'm, it's unacceptable. Don't you know the world we live in? I, I need that money. I use that money. And I realize to some of you, it's a real struggle. 10%. Like when we got approved for a mortgage for a house, we got approved for an amount way more than we actually could afford. And I was like, why did they approve us for this? And then I realized they don't factor in the tithe. They, don't, they look at my salary. They don't look at the fact that I'm actually making, probably when it's done with tithe and offering, 85% of my salary I actually keep, and the rest I give. Now, some people say, well, the Old Testament was about the tithe, and in the New Testament, Jesus did away with the tithe. I'm not sure that's actually true, because when Jesus talks about the tithe, he says, don't neglect it, but also don't just do that and not love people. That was his whole point. But even if you want to say that the Old Testament standard was the tithe, you know what the New Testament standard is? The cross. It's not doesn't get any better. Jesus didn't go to the cross and die 10%. He didn't give 10% of himself for you. And the standard is the cross. And so I'm not here to tell you what you have to do with your money or to guilt you or manipulate you. That's not how the gospel works. But what I'm saying is if you have a new identity, if you belong to Christ, and if you're living in a new story, you'll have a totally different attitude about your stuff. You just will. And if you don't, then the solution is not start trying to do the right stuff. But the solution is try to understand better the story of God. So, our possessions. Let me give you one more example, and then we'll finish. Another area of our life, I think, is our sufferings. Now, all of us will suffer. I mean, Jesus promised his disciples. Talk about a promise you don't want. He promised his disciples that they would suffer. He told us, in this world, you will have hard times. You will have tribulations. There's no one in this room that hasn't suffered. This past year, I've walked several friends through tremendous suffering. I watched a, I, I walked one of my best friends through the death of his uh, 18-month-old child. We, we saw what happened, obviously, with baby Maddox, the, the young baby that her mom was in our, was in our church. Uh, you know, my friend who was 40 years old, died of a heart attack this past August in his, in his sleep. Uh, and yesterday would have been his 41st birthday. Like, we've seen suffering. And, of course, we have health concerns in our church and with our leader and with our pastor. Like, they're, they're, we understand. We're familiar with suffering suffering. But suffering, this is, this is what I've been learning recently, suffering has a way of surfacing people's theology. It just does. Suffering will surface what you really believe about God and who you really believe he is and how you really believe he relates to you. Okay? So let me tell you, you're, if you're an achiever, here's what you think of when it comes to suffering. I get what I deserve or I don't get what I don't deserve because I'm an achiever. And if I've served God, he owes me. He owes me health and he owes me wealth. And so here's what your story is when you suffer. Either I messed up or God messed up. One or the other. Either I messed up or God messed up. But when the gospel changes is when we suffer, here's, a, here's our identity as a receiver. When you suffer, whether it's a loss of job, whether it's health, whether it's difficult time, whether it's relationships, whatever your suffering may be, as a receiver, here's your identity. I belong to Christ, and my life and the outcome of my life is for his glory and for his choosing alone. We serve a sovereign God who chooses as he will. You know, Paul says, does the clay say to the potter, hold up? What are you doing? Start over. I didn't want to be a mug. I wanted to be a frame. I didn't want to be a vase. 
I want it to be a platter, right? Does the, does the clay say to the potter? Do we say to God, here's what, here, I don't like what you're doing in my life. I don't like your workings in me. I don't like going through this time. Instead, we say, I belong to you. My hope is in you. You've done everything for me that could ever matter, and it cannot be taken away what you've accomplished for me. So literally, everything else is the cherry on top. It's the gravy. And so the new story that we live out when we suffer is this. Jesus, you owed me nothing, but you gave me everything. It's the only thing that can't be taken from me. Everything else at some point in your life will be taken from you. No one gets out of this thing alive. Everything will be taken from us except what Jesus has done for us. So now I owe him everything. There is nothing he can't ask of me. He is a good father, and he sees all the things I don't see, and he knows what I don't know. The Bible says his thoughts are higher. His ways are higher. His son suffered in my place. So when we suffer, we're not becoming less like Jesus. You heard pastor say last week on his video, he is sharing now in the sufferings of Christ. And when we suffer, we actually, God will use that to shape us to become like him. Who are we to think that if we live righteous, we won't suffer when the only righteous person that ever lived suffered in ways that none of us will ever suffer? It doesn't make any sense. It's a poor interpretation of the story of Scripture. Who of the apostles didn't suffer? Ten of the twelve disciples of Jesus Christ died for their faith. They, they didn't get through this without suffering. So we need a better story. We need a truer story. And here's the truer story. Nothing in our lives will be wasted because of what Jesus did. Because he's redempted, nothing that happens to you or around you will be wasted. And nothing in your world won't someday be made new. Because God is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his children. He is sovereign even through suffering. And we place our trust and hope in him. Listen, good people suffer. Bad people suffer. You know, I know at the inauguration speech, Franklin Graham started off by saying, in the Bible, rain is a sign of blessing. You heard that, right? It's, it's true. I mean, there are times in Scripture, because they lived in an agrarian agricultural society where rain was definitely a sign of blessing, and there were times where there were droughts that God used to punish his people. But I also thought of this verse, and please hear me, this is not a political statement. This is a theological statement. Jesus said in Matthew 5.45, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. So I don't disagree with what Franklin said, but I think we need to understand that God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And so when we suffer, it changes our, it helps to have the right story because we've received what we should not have. Verse 18, all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. The gospel is receive, not achieve. Let's bow our heads and pray. In just a moment, we're going to stand and respond through song by singing the words to the stand about Jesus carrying our sin and the weight of our sins being upon him. But if you're here this morning and you would say, I don't know that I belong to Jesus, I would ask you just to look at him. Consider who he is. If you're here and you say, this all sounds good and I wish it was true, but I'm not sure it is. 
I would just encourage you to, to, to continue. Come back for this 10-week series on the gospel. We've just done the third week, but we have seven more truths, and I believe that God will use it in your heart. If you want to call it to God this morning, all you simply have to say is, Dear God, I, I recognize that I can't save myself. I cannot achieve salvation. But Jesus, you achieve salvation for me, and I believe that. I receive that. I receive what you've done for me. If you're a Christian here this morning, maybe for you this morning this message means it's not, not so much about changing your actions, but maybe it's more about changing your motivations behind what you're doing. You're not serving God to achieve something, not out of fear or guilt, but you're serving God out of deep gratitude that he achieved for you what you can never have achieved for yourself. Just take 30 seconds in your seat and let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. And then Jason's going to have us stand together and sing.